All right, we're in Genesis chapter 4 today. We're looking at the big story of the Bible. You know, a lot of people approach the Bible like it's just a bunch of separate stories, each with its own moral and lesson about life. But you really can't understand the message. You can't understand the person of Christ and His work. You can't understand the full message of what God intended for us through His Word unless you see the big story. We've taken a a good deal of time in these opening chapters because they set the stage for the whole story. After this week, we'll begin to pick up pace. But today, we linger one more time in these opening chapters, and we're going to talk about the first sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel. Anybody here who's been a, a younger sibling can appreciate sibling rivalry. I certainly had that. I I, uh, am two years younger than my big brother, Rich, and not only younger than my brother, I was always a little less coordinated than he was. He was a gifted athlete. When God handed out muscles, he gave my brother extra muscles, you know. My whole life with my brother can be wrapped up in one particular summer where Richie had just really popped physically and athletically, and I was way behind. He had learned to throw a fastball, The problem was I hadn't even learned to catch a lob ball, let alone a fastball. But my mom said to him, Rich, your brother just isn't ready. Don't try to throw him his fastball. And I remember this moment, well, playing catch, and Rich says, let me throw it overhand. Just let me throw one overhand. And uh, my brother's recollection is that I went, okay, and held the mitt to my face. And as I pulled it down, he had thrown overhand, and it caught the top of the glove, went into my eye socket, and I proceeded to swell up about as big as that hardball. Now, my brother, of course, got in really big trouble for that. I remember about three, four days later, the swelling had gone down, but I still had all sorts of soreness here. And we were upstairs in our bedroom playing at opposite sides of the room. And I was doing something really stupid, but I, I, I think a lot of second graders have done this. I found a ruler and a rubber band and shooting at these paper cups, and I pulled to the eye that was black, and it let go on the other end and came back and hit me. And I started screaming my head off. And my brother had gotten up to come over to check on me, and he's leaning over me. I'm wailing. My mother comes into the room, (laughs) sees the image, grabs my brother, starts wailing on him. What did you do to him now? That's my favorite moment of my whole upbringing. Well, there obviously was a sibling rivalry here, but if we get too caught up in that part of the story, we'll miss what's really being taught here because this is less about siblings, more about how original sin found its way down into the generations that would follow and became ingrained in our DNA as a culture. That's the story of this whole chapter, which breaks up into three very neat little sections here. The first is the story of Cain and Abel leading up to the murder. The middle section is God's reaction to Cain. And then the final section is the beginning of the development of culture and civilization and the direction it took. So let's read the first section, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits for the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? 
If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. That's our first section where we see, as your notes show, a worshiper and a murderer. Let's see how this all evolves. And we have to begin with this initial question. Why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's not accepted? I wouldn't exactly call it the cause of the situation, but certainly the the spark that lit the fire, the murderous fire in Cain. Why is it? Some people have suggested it's because Abel made a blood sacrifice, that uh, somehow Cain's offering itself, the stuff he gave God was wrong. But that's not true. We know that in the Old Testament, people brought grain offerings and produce offerings as well as meat offerings. So that, that isn't the case. Some have suggested that it's just that God chose sovereignly to favor Abel over Cain. I, I do believe in God's sovereign election. But that is not the case here either. According to Hebrews 11, it says, Abel made a better offering than his brother Cain. So there was something about the act of worship that Abel got right and Cain got wrong. The traditional idea of good and bad really has a problem when you look at what happens between Cain and Abel. The traditional way of thinking is that we divide good and evil by a pretty bright line. The good people uphold moral values. Bad people live the way that they want to live. But here's the problem with this. You don't have, in Genesis 4, one brother boozing it up, living a licentious life, and another brother being pious. You don't have one brother being irresponsible and living off the goodness of society, and another being a healthy contributor to society. What you have is both brothers working and worshiping. So what is the issue here? Why then, at what appears to be two people living worthy, valuable, and moral lives, what's the problem here with Cain? You find it in the language and in the description. There's a couple of really important words here that we have to look at. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits. If you're inclined to circling and marking, just circle that word, some. Then when you look at Abel's offering, there are two distinctives. The first is the fat portions, which speaks of the better pieces, the better cuts. And then he uses the phrase of the firstborn. So there's a very important difference between how Cain approaches this and how Abel approaches it. And what it tells us is that worship, listen, is a state of the heart, not state of the art not the act itself. It's the condition of the heart in the bringing. What Abel does is to give God from the best of what he has, and he gives to God first. What Cain does is what most of us do, abided by the letter of the law. They did just what they had to do. See, to be a person that gives from the first fruits means, if you're breeding sheep, for instance, you give God the first lamb. And then what happens if you only have two lambs? You're making a 50% return to God. That's, that's a lot more than most of us would choose to do. But that's the spirit of generosity that, that comes 
enables worship, and that is expected in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people are taught to give first to God. It's all His. It's not a question of how much I'm giving Him of what's mine. It's a question of how much do I keep to live on. God gets the first. Abel demonstrates that. And what we really see in Cain and Abel is that there are only two reasons to bring an offering to God. There's only two reasons to worship. One is out of adoration in response to our salvation. And the other is out of manipulation as a means to our salvation. Now, I want you to think about it. There was a study we did this past fall about two other brothers. If you compare that parable of the prodigal sons, not just the one prodigal, but the two prodigals, the elder brother and the younger brother, and begin to compare them to Cain and Abel, there's a remarkable similarity. You have the elder brother who did all the right things, never ran away, did not live a licentious life, was faithful to the father always. And then when the son comes back and he's offered grace, the elder brother becomes the prodigal. He becomes the angry one, the one who is disenfranchised from his father. Why? Because what he was doing in being good and doing the right things with his father was out of self-righteousness. He was doing it in order to deserve, in order to obligate his father on his behalf. So what we see in Cain and Abel are the two ways that people approach religion are the two ways people approach morality. I live a good life either in response to God's goodness in my relationship with him, so it's an overflow of a life that comes by faith, or I live a good life as a means to getting something from God so that I'm worthy, I'm deserving, and God is obliged to do good things for me. And that's why if we go back to Hebrews 11 and see the whole verse, we see what the difference really was between Abel and Cain's offerings. Let's say this together. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. What was it that God was affirming in Abel? It wasn't the act itself. It was the faith and the simple trust that Abel was offering to God, exercising toward God as a response. What was Cain doing? Cain was offering it with expectations. If I do this, God owes me. And what happens to people's religion when they approach it that way, and then life doesn't go their way? What happens? Bitterness and anger and a sense of betrayal. Not because God promised something and then didn't make good, but because we thought all along we could manipulate God by doing all the right things and obligate God towards us. That's what we see in Cain. And it's why at the end of it, Cain is bitter. And he's not just bitter towards Abel, he's bitter towards God. All of us who are on a spiritual journey are either Cain or Abel. We're either coming to God by faith, trusting him, or we're trusting ourselves, our good works, expecting that it will oblige God. God doesn't play by those rules. Elder brothers get bitter when God doesn't meet their expectations and angry at others who he does bless. That's what we see in Cain. And it is what leads to murder. It's very interesting that the Bible talks about hatred as the precursor. Jesus spoke about hatred as the equivalent to murder. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, 
Here's one of the things he writes. It always used to puzzle me about Christian writers who seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sins of thought as if they were immensely important. But then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you had only got to repent and all would be forgiven. But I have come to see that they are right. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self which no one sees. One man may be so placed, this is what I want you to hear, one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. Think about that. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents, he will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. It's interesting to consider that. One man's anger and the position he's in results in the murder of thousands, millions. Another person's anger because of the position they're in, no matter how angry they get, only results in being laughed at. Is the anger any less murderous? And this is the thing about sin. There's two things about sin that we see in this little phrase that God says to him. Verse 6 and 7, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin, this is the phrase, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What God is picturing is a cat or a lion that is in hiding, crouching, just waiting. And this is what God sees in Cain. He sees it in his anger. And he's saying to him, you must master this because sin is waiting to take control of you. So this illustration that God himself gives Cain teaches us two things about sin. One, it's a predator. It's not just an act, but it's a power that eventually takes control of us. I like the way Tim Keller puts this. First, we do sin, but eventually that same sin does us. It takes control of us. Things that we do the first time become easier to repeat, and they get bolder and stronger and eventually become a habit. Here's, here's a good example. If you have a person in your life that you have a lot of bitterness and resentment towards, that is not just impacting your relationship with that person. That bitterness owns you. You don't own it. You think of that bitterness as something that is just directed towards that person, but that bitterness becomes a practiced attitude that impacts your relationship with everybody. See, Sin is a predator. That's the first thing we see. It's not just an act. It's a power. It's a dynamic. That's why our culture needs to recover the language of sin. You know, we can't replace it with victim and psychological terminology. We just can't because none of them come close. You you may want to say, okay, well, let's come up with a different word. Okay, fine. Come up with a different word and put it in place of sin, but make sure it's defined the same way sin is defined. 
And when you do that, people will reject it too because it's not the word itself. It's the notion. It's the notion that I am morally responsible and that I fail and that those failures can take over me and own me. That's what, as a society, we find offensive. And that's what we have to own if we're going to understand the gospel. The second thing we see about sin this is that sin hides. The sin that's about to overtake you, God sees it coming. He knows the anger of the heart. He says sin is just crouching, waiting. It wants to have you, but it's hiding. Sin hides. The character flaws in your life that most ruin you are the ones that you refuse to see, the ones you don't want to admit are there. Keller says, so as long as you look at workaholism as just conscientiousness, as long as you look at your grudge as moral outrage, as long as you look at materialism as mere ambition, or arrogance as a healthy self-assertion, as long as you look at your obsession with looks as simply good grooming, you're at risk. It's what we don't see. It's what we refuse to acknowledge. That in the end is like the crouching sin. What are your crouching sins? What are the things that you entertain and allow in your life, just like Cain had in this moment, just that anger and that little bitter root? Note how God lovingly reaches out to Cain, tries to pull him back, speak truth and love to him, warn him to master it. And watch how Cain instead chooses to be overtaken by that bitterness and commit murder. Let's quickly move to punishment and mercy and look at it. Let's read beginning at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Let me just pause there real quick so I can point it out right now. What a contrast in this second generation of sin to the original sin that we looked at last week, Adam and Eve. When you see Adam and Eve failing and they fall into this sudden awareness of evil, this shame, they're like two kids that have been caught. They're so ashamed they just run and hide. I, I had that phase as, as a little kid. But then I reached high school age and I was defiant right to my dad's face. Don't you see that in Cain? Don't you see sin becoming an attitude that's like second nature and, and character to him now? There's a hardness there. Let's read on. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's just look real quickly at Cain's response in contrast to God's response. The first thing you see about Cain is this hard-heartedness and unrepentant attitude. Throughout this whole story, Cain never repents. Cain never expresses regret for his actions. 
And just see his anger towards God. You see the animosity. Am I my brother's keeper? Like some snotty brat kid. And then, when God announces the punishment, does he turn back and say, oh, what have I done? Poor Abel, the broken hearts of my mother and father. No, all he's doing is thinking of himself. This punishment is too great for me. Completely unrepentant throughout. By contrast, God is acting in both justice and mercy towards Cain. Let's look at this real quick. We obviously see God's justice. The key phrase is, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. This is a common phrase that you'll find throughout Scripture, where the blood of innocent people comes back to God, and God, who is a God of justice, will always act justly. Justice on behalf of the victim and the widow and the orphan, but also justice towards evil and towards disobedience. God always acts justly, and we see that. He acts justly towards Cain, but he also acts mercifully. Where do you see the mercy of God? First of all, you see it in the warning and the instruction and the exhorting towards Cain throughout. Notice how many times God engages Cain with a question. Here's just a great little thing of wisdom. If God is ever asking you a question, he's not looking for information. (laughs) He's invented the Socratic method. How do you like that? It wasn't Socrates, it was God. He draws out the truth. He's reaching to him. There's the warning, and then there's the reaching out, and then in verse 15, there's the mark of Cain. And now, this is interesting, because we see the mark of Cain as part of the judgment. It wasn't. Don't let modern misinterpretation of this ancient story confuse you. The mark of Cain wasn't the punishment. The mark of Cain was the protection of God. It was an act of mercy. We don't know what it was. God somehow marked Cain so that people would know that to hurt or harm Cain would be to bring on God's judgment even more than the judgment that Cain received. So you see God acting in both justice and mercy towards him. Let's just quickly look at the generations that now follow. Let's begin reading at verse... um, 17. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujahel, and Mahujahel was the father of Methushael. Do you mind if we skip all these names? Let's just go down for sake of time to Lamech. Uh, verse 19. Lamech married two sons, one named Adah and the other Zila. Uh, Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Uh, Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all things of tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. So we see the development of culture, and we see the development of city here. And then we pick up with Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 70 times seven. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. Last phrase of this chapter is critically important for where we're going next week. At that time, men began 
to call on the name of the Lord. Let me just address some of the things that are puzzles to us. Cain goes off and lives, where does he live? In the land of Nod. Who's Nod? He lays with his wife. Where does his wife come from? He builds a city. Who's living in there? So you see these interesting questions that the story just seems to jump right past. And if we were to look back at it with the presumption that this is meant to be a complete history, for us to go back and force that on these people is to create a false standard that the original authors didn't intend. We have to recognize what the purpose of the first five books of the Bible are. Remember, they're called the Torah. The whole reason this narrative exists for the Hebrew people is not to give them a complete and utter history and certainly not to present scientific facts. The thing you need to remember is that the Bible is actually very restrictive in its details. It's very narrow in its focus. It gives you the information you need to know to understand where the story's going. When we waste our time trying to explain where Cain's wife came from, we're not honoring the Scripture because that's not the point of the story. And we're letting other people set a standard that essentially will dismiss all of Scripture by for a standard that Scripture itself did not profess to hold. See my point? It's, it's not a, a problem for the author. The point is to recognize how this path leads to ultimately the law which came down to the people of Israel, which is the path we're going to trace. So we've got to get past most of that stuff and recognize that the Bible doesn't intend to be like the exhaustive works of Josephus, a great master of history during the period of Western civilization that includes the time of Christ. That's not what the Bible professes to be. So I know I spent more time on that than, than I planned, but let me just dig into this and just put out a couple of things and we'll wrap up. You seek the beginning of culture and cities. Some people have taken this to suggest that God is anti-city. In fact, the Bible is very pro-city. It's not about that. What you see in Genesis 4 is both the culture developing as God in some ways intended, be fruitful, multiply, harness the world, rule over it. We see culture and creativity evolving, all pointing to the image of God, the Imago Dei. We see that, but in the midst of it, we also see a moral brokenness. What we really have presented here is a choice between cities and between kingdoms. There is the city of man, and there's the city of God. There's the religion of self-reliance and dependence that is marked by Lamech, who says, if God is going to avenge Cain seven times, I will defend myself. What Lamech is describing is absolute independence from God and sovereignty over himself. He will execute his own justice. He will make his own decisions. He is the true son of Cain. That's Lamech. So in the midst of this great expansion of culture, you see this brokenness, you see this culture of death that takes hold, that is the legacy of of Cain. But then you see a new legacy birthed through Seth, who would become the righteous line. And that's the city of God. One is the kingdom of man. One is the kingdom of God. One is the culture of death. The other is the culture of faith and life even though we have this rootedness in our DNA of rebellion against God, which was, after all, the first sin and is the heart of all sin, 
There were also those who at that time began to call by faith on the living God. So it's a pretty dark downturn, but in the midst of it, you see hope. What do we see in this that is about Christ? How it sets the path for Christ? Look at Cain. When he said, I'm afraid this punishment is too much to me, everything that Cain thought would happen to him, which in fact didn't happen to him, did happen to Christ. Cain said, I will be a wanderer on the earth. I will have no place. Cain ended up building a city. But Christ came and said, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Cain said, people will find me and kill me. God spared him from that. But God's own son came. He was found, he was arrested, and he was killed. Cain said, I will be apart from your presence. God continued to show mercy to Cain, reaching out, calling him to repent. But God's own son, Jesus, hung on the cross. He became our sin. He became all sin. Cain's and Adam's and Eve's and yours and mine. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Christ did was to turn God's justice on our side. Cain stood as a self-reliant man. He took God's justice head on. When we come to God through Christ... Christ has satisfied God's justice against sin. And now, the only thing for those of us who are in Christ, God can justly do. He doesn't ignore his justice when he looks at me, but he looks at Christ. He looks at us through Christ, and his justice is satisfied. And all that's left is grace in life. You have a choice you need to make. You see, being religious marked both Cain and Abel. But one is a religion of death. It's a religion of self-reliance and expectation. The other is a religion of life. It's about simple trust in a good God and what he's provided through Christ. What path are you on? Would you just take a moment and ask yourself where your heart is and dare to entertain the possibility that there's more of a cane in you than an Abel? <laughs> That there's a self-reliant spirit that may even drive your spiritual pursuit. And maybe it's time to let go of that self-reliance and surrender by simple faith. That was the act that Abel did. And the same way Abel was justified by faith, that's how we're justified with God. You can just even now say, Lord, I surrender all that I have to you. I receive the work of Christ on my behalf. And I put my faith and trust in Christ. Let's pray together.